welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for market intelligence, forecasts, and success strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Ball. Thank you for being with us. The excitement is brought to you by ArborCrowd.com. For professional crowdfunding, whether you're a sponsor or an investor, visit ArborCrowd.com. Well, today we're going to talk about multifamily. We're going to talk about the apartment industry, and there's certainly a lot going on with demographics and we're going to talk about the impact of, of some of the new supply that we've seen in the marketplace. We're also going to talk about the impact of rising interest rates. What might that do uh, to the market? We're going to talk about property performance trends, what we're seeing there and uh, cap rate expectations and then finally we'll talk about some financing. What should we expect moving forward? How should you plan for it? Please welcome my first guest. It's Jay Parsons and Jay is VP of Analytics with RealPage. Their website is realpage.com. He's joining us on the phone today. Jay, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Michael. So Jay, what are you seeing in the apartment world today? We've uh, finished the uh, second quarter. Uh, what, what's going on? Well, it's, it's more of the same. Uh, the apartment market is, is doing well. Uh, we're certainly past those peak rent growth days, but anybody who is predicting um, dire stretches for the apartment industry at this point was uh, likely wrong, except for maybe a few niches of the market. Overall, still a ton of demand and still at least solid rent growth. Yeah, so we had seen really strong rent growth, right, for the last several years. So you're seeing that slow down now to more maybe normal uh, area records? Yes, we've been seeing rent growth uh, year over year in the mid to mid two to high twos range now for a couple of years, and that's it seems to be settling in in that range. Um, now we we do think there's actually potential to get a little bit better going forward for a, f a few reasons we could get into, but the the key point here is that um, some of the th there'd been some some concerns um, by some investors and some analysts out there that rent growth could really flatten off uh, for the U.S. overall, and and that's certainly not happening. So uh, I, I heard you said there might be some potential for an increase in rate growth. Tell us where that potential could come from. Yeah, Michael, we've talked about this a little bit in the past, and you know, and 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 how the importance in, in this point in the cycle, you really have to segment the market. And you know, the apartment industry is is so big. You know, 20 million units across the country, and so obviously, what's happening in one segment or in one market or in one submarket could be very different from what's happening elsewhere. And so. Um, you know, we go back three, four years, it's, you know, rising tide boosts all ships, everything's blowing and going. It doesn't matter if you had the worst locations, the worst operating philosophies, you're still probably successful. And that's just not the case these days. And so what we're seeing is that um, in those uh, the right suburban areas and in the Class B segment overall, there's still a lot of strength. And we think that what we're starting to see is that the operators in those segments are starting to figure out that, you know, vacancy rates are still low. Affordability is a non-issue in those segments. No one's obviously building Class B supply, and in the best suburbs, it's very hard to build. And so, I think what we're finding is that there's potential to keep the 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 the, 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 the pedal on the metal, so to speak, and and get some decent rent growth in those in those spots. And so, that segment could could very likely. Uh, help drive overall uh, a, a modest increase in, in overall rent growth while Class A and urban continues to, to underperform. And what are some ways to achieve that growth? Is it through technology, through better management, or uh, just selective investing? Well, I think it's all of the above. Obviously, at, at, when you're nine years into the cycle, um, the, the best operating philosophies and the best op, uh, investment strategies are what's really standing out. And so uh, certainly, um, you know, when, 
getting a little more in, into that, you know, if you were if your belief was that you had to be urban to be successful uh, in this cycle, and, and you bought all in on the ideal the idea that every millennial wants to live downtown, then chances are you're not reaching your pro forma uh, uh, NOI numbers right now. Uh, conversely, if if you saw that the, that the indicator showed, you know what, there's in the right kinds of suburbs, if we could really categorize the good versus the bad and separating out the you know your your aging suburbs with a burned out Sears and a Pizza Hut with a big parking lot versus you know these more urban like suburban areas and growth markets with high end employment, access to transportation, retail, restaurants, high home prices, good schools, you know. And those segments, um, as well as the Class B overall, we're seeing just a, a lot of strength. And for those who are able to bet on that uh, early, are, it's, it's really paying off. And secondarily, of course, technology and, and operating management is, is a big piece of this as well. I mean, certainly we continue. Uh, we, you know, we're obviously big believers in revenue management, and we're continuing to see um, you know, the, those who have been ahead of the curve there uh, see that pay off. Yeah, revenue management is uh, a pretty incredible tool. and. Uh, most of our listeners will know what that is, but uh, that enables you to use technology to know what your competitors are doing, what's coming up in your unit, and kind of take those rent increase decisions and, and change them daily like the hotel industry. And You, you mentioned that the um, some of the investors who may have went all in on urban may not be hitting their pro forma numbers for buying these in, very close in-town uh, properties. Is that because of new supply? Where are we on new supply levels? Uh, absolutely, you nailed it. Uh, you know, the issue is not that there's n there's there isn't demand downtown. I mean, there's there's a ton of demand downtown, um, and we're getting more demand than ever before, um, really a across the board. The, you know, one of the things is everybody's been focused so much on supply and and moderating rent growth both downtown and really across the board. The demand story cannot be undersold. There's a lot of demand out there, and even as the older millennials are leaving and buying homes and whatnot, there's a lot more demand coming in the front door, and so that's a very good sign for the for the industry. But the issue, as you mentioned, it's supply, and what's happened is is sort of a a perfect storm where over the last couple of cycles, a lot of the cities across the country have have incentivized downtown revitalization. They really want to bring in residences residents. Uh, to help bring in more of a 24-hour uh, life to to uh, to these downtown areas. On top of that, there's been a big movement from commercial real estate investors to favor the downtown story for for a wide variety of reasons. It's gotten a lot of attention, and so uh, because of that, we've seen this huge uh, surge in development activity over the last really the past two cycles. And so, uh, and that hadn't been, and we have not had not seen that in the prior few decades. And so. What's happened is that while well, you have a lot of really unique, cool product in great locations, we've sort of commoditized the unique, great product in great locations, and so it's all competing with each other at a very high price point. And there's just a limited there, – there's plenty of people out there, but it, it, there were, we're building so much supply so fast that it's hard for demand to keep up. They're also – competing lease-ups, completing with properties that recently completed lease-ups. So you get a deal at one property, property across the street uh, is in, the, is in a, offering big discounts to move in during their lease-up. It's very easy to take your stuff and move across the street because so much supply is in uh, a walking distance in, in a lot of these cities across the country. And so, uh, so it's just become a very challenging pricing environment. It's just hard to get a lot of rent growth. Now, long-term, many of these properties are probably going to do great. Um, it's certainly not to say these investment strategies were bad ones. It's just that at this point in the cycle, it's, it's a very challenging environment uh, to, to, to get much on rents. 
Well, our new supply levels uh, going down, or what are we doing? Are we still building? Well, you know, it's not going down, uh, but the good news is it's not going up either. We, we've, um, we've, we're often asked, when's that peak? And what's, what we're seeing in this cycle is it's not so much, uh, a, a, if you think about it in terms of uh, visually, it's not a peak like a mountaintop and you, and you slope back down. We're, we're seeing more of a plateau. And so we've been a little north of 300,000 units uh, completing annually now um, since the first part of 2017. And as, as we look into the future uh, and look at what's actually breaking, breaking ground, what's underway, you know, we're going to remain at these levels uh, likely through the first part of 2020 until we really start to slow down. There just, there just hasn't been that big drop-off in supply and permitting. Um, it's, just, it's just not happening. Uh, obviously, it can't persist forever, but the market's still strong enough to justify uh, continuing starts in a lot of these markets. Yeah, well, it's a, a healthy market. And we're talking with Jay Parsons with RealPage about the multifamily market. And Jay, you mentioned that there's some new demand coming. So where is this new demand coming from for multifamily? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, what's, what's happening is I think in our industry, everybody gets so focused on generations of, of demographics. We tend to categorize um, our residences and residents in terms of the generation that they're in. And so everyone's very focused right now on millennials. And so because of that, because we got so excited about millennials earlier in the cycle, now we've gotten ourselves worked up that these millennials are now in their mid-30s, the oldest ones are, and they're at that age when even though it's taken longer to get married and have kids and get a single-family house, they're now at that age where they're going to be doing it. Uh, and that's caused some fear-mongering a little bit. And, and, you know, there's some people who say, hey, that's not going to happen. But, you know, the reality is it does happen. People, at the end of the day, what we're seeing is that the oldest millennials are going to behave uh, more similar to their parents than not. But there's a, what people forget is that just because someone turns 35 and moves out, or 32, whatever that age is, um, you also have to bear in mind there's still people who have turned 20 and 21 and 22 and 23 every day. And the good news for us as an industry is that uh, the, the peak age group is still in its early to mid-20s. And so there's a lot of people who are just entering that prime apartment renter age for the first time. And so there's a lot of people aging up and to replace those who are moving out. The other great thing for our industry is the, the baby boomers and, and older adults. Um, you know, we're not big believers in the concept that, that, that we're going to see this huge uh, shift in preference of people selling their homes and renting an apartment, but it doesn't really matter because the reality is that the baby boomers are so big that even if the percentage or the share of older adults choosing to rent apartments stays stagnant, you're going to see a huge increase in demand just by sheer numbers. The baby boomer generation is twice the size of the generation before it. And so there's, there's a lot of good demand drivers still in place uh, for, for apartments um, right now coming from both older adults and from these younger adults. Yeah, well, it's interesting because you know, I, I'm a baby boomer and I have a little place uh, up at the lake and a, and a little place in town. And I think I'd be open to the right uh, apartment rental uh, in town myself. And uh, you know, just for the, the convenience of it, not have another property, another home to, to maintain, right? So what do yeah. you, what do you expect for, uh, impact of rising interest rates and cap rates or you know is the multifamily community uh, kind of concerned about what's going to happen there it d definitely it's a lot of talk i i think that the as, as you really start to see this play out you talk to investors you talk to lenders 
Um, what we're seeing is, is, is that it's not really affected deal flow. What's happening is you may be changing a little bit of the financing structure of some of these deals. Um, you know, it just it, 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 it causes some, some differences on the margins. But the reality is deals are still getting done. And even as interest rates increase a little bit, the spreads remain very attractive relative to previous cycles. So um, we aren't at a point where we're really seeing an impact on, on, uh, on deals getting done. Okay. And what would you leave our audience with, uh, Jay, related to multifamily today? Well, I, I would just continue to emphasize that, you know, every, that it's, a, it's a diverse market, and there's, there's a lot of demand still out there, and, and certainly the market isn't what it was in, in 2015 in terms of just rent growth across the board. But, you know, if you're an investor, there's still opportunity out there, and um, I would just encourage you to really evaluate your investment strategy, your criteria. What do you uh, you know, what, what, maybe the things that, you know, challenge your assumptions. You know, if you feel like the, there's just not opportunity out there, you know, look at your assumptions and figure out, okay, well, uh, if, if we, can, can we, uh, without having to do the so-called feared, you know, chasing yield play, are there, are there options out there that, um, that may be less uh, risky than we've perceived historically? based on some of these things we're talking about. And so there's definitely still opportunity out there for investors, and I think for operators it's just uh, continuing to, to let the technology, revenue management, and, and the science guide you, and not, not overreacting when, when, things, when, when someone moves out or you got a bad month. Uh, there's, like I said, there's still a lot of demand out there, and I think the number one concern to really be watching for on the operations side is just overreacting to, to, to micro-trends because – Again, the, the overall fundamentals are still quite healthy. Yeah. Yeah, you got to watch, uh, if you're just watching the headlines and the news, don't, <laughs> don't overreact to it, right? Jay, great yeah. information. Thanks for uh, joining us, sir. My pleasure. Thank you, Michael. And stay tuned. We'll have more on the U.S. multifamily market, some strategies, and some tips. Stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Would you like access to invest in institutional quality commercial real estate with experienced sponsors with small amounts of money? Of course you would. Visit realcrowd.com. Choose between core, core plus, value add, or opportunistic. Visit realcrowd.com. Check out Valuate, a real estate analysis program that can be easily shared with colleagues online to do what-if analysis. Visit GetValuate.com. That's GetValuate.com. Would you like to be the top producing commercial broker in your office? Check out Michael Bull's video training. Since you're a show listener, you receive 10% off your first purchase. At checkout, use discount code CREshow. Visit CommercialAgentSuccess.com. Are you looking for proven property management and facilities management education? Visit BOMI.org. That's B-O-M-I, Building Owners and Managers Institute International. They are the trusted source for education in the property and facilities industry. Visit BOMI.org. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Thank you for being with us. This segment is brought to you by BOMI.org. That's B-O-M-I.org. They are the industry standard in facilities and property management education. Check them out. 
Well, today we're talking about multifamily, and I think one of the things that adds strength to the multifamily market is the financing, the readily available financing that multifamily tends to always have. But uh, there are some changes in the market. We're seeing interest rates rise. We're seeing some, some good supply levels in some markets. So what does that mean to financing? What does that mean to underwriting? What does that mean to interest rates? We have an expert in uh, the Studio One here with you today, Tom Walsh. He is Senior VP with Grandbridge, and they are BB&T's commercial mortgage banking subsidiary, and he's here in Studio One. Tom, thanks for being with us again. Nice to be here again, Michael. So, Tom, I think my first question for my audience is, about underwriting, you know, it seems like when I, when I listen to Brian Bailey at the Fed talk about, you know, kind of the new supply multifamily, I look at some of the cities we work in, like Atlanta, I see a lot of cranes, a lot of new supply. How are lenders looking at the multifamily sector in general right now? Uh, there is certainly some concern about supply. Uh, it's somewhat limited to more urban or semi-urban core locations. Uh, what we would you know call around here the in town inside the perimeter market, which a lot of cities have a similar situation to that. By and large, uh, we have not built a lot of apartments in suburbia since the recession. The, uh, all, all over the country, most of the building has been in the urban locations, and that, based on kind of what's where the millennials like to live, and the, the, those have become the live, work, play, walking areas. But there are several cities in the country where supply is a concern. Uh, for lenders and they're watching that very carefully. Yeah, so are they changing their underwriting standards because of that or is it just on maybe those in-town class A it's, it, it's probably more in, in how people view construction loans. Okay. Uh, I haven't seen in the permanent market yet really much reaction to that. But in the those, those properties are stable. On yes, it. yes. Yeah. In the construction, uh, that industry though, yeah, there were certainly um, a, a very jaded eye sometimes on, on a lot of properties um, and, and just trying to be careful the regulators uh, you know most of your construction lending is done by banks mm -hmm. still and obviously they're regulated and, and the regulators uh, are, are bound and determined that the 2007 to 2009 situation is not going to happen again and so they watch very carefully how people are underwriting their construction loans and that they don't get what we call too far out over their skis, really, just you know, too much exposure. Um, so it, it, it has caused a slowdown in construction lending. I think it's harder to get a loan, mm -hmm. but it's certainly not impossible, as evidenced by cranes, a lot of places. Yeah. And what is the equity requirement change that you've seen from maybe three or four years ago to today for a construction a, loan? A, a lot of deals are done these days with... Uh, say 60 to 65 percent of cost construction loans. Mm -hmm. uh, the time uh, of, of people getting 75, 88, 85 percent of cost mm -hmm. in the market, that doesn't really happen from the lending perspective. And in all reality, uh, there doesn't seem to be much desire even in the borrowing sector for that. I think people are trying to be safer, taking a longer term approach to things and, and keeping your debt a little more manageable yeah. is one way to do that. The exception would be those people doing HUD financing, where 80 to 83 percent of cost financing is still readily available. Um, you know, HUD takes a kind of a unique situation and a unique borrower because of the time frame involved, but still a very viable option you know, you know, for people that have the time and have their land under control. For new construction. 
Yes, and, for new construction. And will some of these lenders uh, with these loan to value ratios uh, allow MES financing? Um, it depends on your construction lender. Uh, there are construction lenders that would love to do 55% loans and have you layer 10 or 15% on top of that. Um, there are other lenders who, who will not allow mezzanine financing behind them, just a, as a matter of policy. Yeah. It's all over the board with yeah. that. Um, mezzanine lending has changed. Mezzanine lending used to be for the borrower that didn't have enough money, mm -hmm. basically. And, and you got your 75% construction loan, I don't have 25% equity, so you went from 75 to 85 with MES financing. Now you find today that sometimes you're going from 60 to 70 with MES financing. I see. Uh, so it's, it, it's, it has a different profile, but there are still, there are still several lenders that, that just as a matter of policy will not allow mezzanine financing. There are others that will. Well, you know, you give me a comfort level to, to hear about that, to see that maybe when the cycle does turn, maybe we're in better shape this time. Oh, I, I would say uh, 100% we are in better shape than we were the last time. Um, supply, while you see a lot of it in the urban core markets, we are not oversupplied in, in most parts of most markets. Um, it's uh, the governor on, on the market being, being financing, being more equity, being people remember how devastating it was and it wasn't that long ago you know it's you know nine years ago now mm -hmm. nine to ten years ago now mm -hmm. there's a lot of people with long memories on that they're trying to have that not happen again yeah so what about let's turn to um, existing financing for existing sure. projects you know, what are you seeing for underwriting there and what are you seeing for rate trends um, you know underwriting is 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 still I would say fairly straightforward you know it's a it, it's a it's a trailing three revenue, trailing 12 other income, trailing 12 expenses underwriting. There's, there's not a lot of funky things going on in underwriting. The, the, most people come to their NOI in a very similar fashion. What they do with that sometimes can be different. Mm -hmm. um, but, but, in, but in determining your underwriting NOI, mo most underwriting shops are, 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 are doing a similar process to do that. Um, what you do when you get to that, that's where you can find some differences between the agencies, the life company lenders, the conduits. You know, they, they may take that NOI number and do some different things with it, which is where you would manifest itself in what you might say someone being more aggressive than someone else is. Yeah, meaning they'll adjust the NOI for their underwriting. Well, it, it, it'll, it'll, it'll be the un, their underwriting standards apply to the NOI as oh, okay. far as debt coverage and okay. debt yield. And, that type and, and of what stuff. kind of debt coverage ratios are, are you seeing from the different um, sources? With rates going up, we're, we're, all, we're almost working our way back to a, a time where 125, 130 becomes a normal debt coverage. You know, in the in the very low rate environment that we existed in for most of the past ten years, mm -hmm. a lot of deals, even at what we would call full leverage, a, a seventy five percent loan, it might have still had a one forty five or one fifty debt cover yeah. because the rate was so low right. on it. Now rates are are getting back to they're still not to historical levels, but they're getting closer, and and that's pushing debt coverage down to what we might call more traditional levels. Yeah. And what about uh, interest rates? What are you seeing the trends there? Um, you know, your rates are are up. Uh, the Treasury rates are up. You know, the, the seven and ten year are both in the mid two eighties right now. Uh, LIBOR is up around, I think, around two ten now, and and that's in you know we had several years 
of LIBOR, 30-day LIBOR, sitting there at 20 basis points, mm -hmm. almost like it was going to be there forever. Mm -hmm. Well, it wasn't, and it's not. You know, LIBOR's up around 210 now. Spreads are kind of all over the place in the mid-100s, mid, mid to high-100s. Your nominal rates today for, say, a, a full loan, which we would call like a 75% loan, maybe an 80% loan on an acquisition, your rates are in the 450 to 470 range. Mm -hmm. If you go down the leverage scale, you know, 65, say a 65% loan, mm -hmm. probably takes that to 430 to 450, mm -hmm. and you get down into the into the lower leverages, you're getting down more into the 410 to 430 range. What's interesting, those rates would I, I would say are typically kind of agency rates. Mm -hmm. When you get into the lower leverages, then you bring in the life insurance companies. And uh, life insurance companies, for especially for high-quality multifamily at lower leverage, they will get down and dirty on pricing, yeah. and you start to see rates getting down, you know, more closer to four, four ten, around there. And what uh, kind of terms are you seeing on initial terms on these? Uh, it's still it's still generally a ten-year loan, twenty-five to thirty-year AM market. Mm -hmm. One one thing that's interesting, the yield curve is very flat right now. So your, your, your additional borrowing cost for, say, taking a 10-year term and expanding that to a 20-year term is very minimal. And so, and especially in the life, I mean, Fannie and Freddie, Fannie offers that product. Freddie really doesn't. But Fannie will go out to 30 years if you want. With no balloon, no call. No, no, no call. Nice. The life insurance companies, there are several life insurance companies that like what we call long money. Mm -hmm. They will go 20, 25, 30 years. You yeah. fully amortize And with deals. Fannie, there's no prepayment, right? Uh, no, you're, you're prepayable at least for some portion of all of those deals. Oh, okay. Yes. Even yes. with Fannie. HUD is the one that... On the, there's a very extended term with HUD out, out to 35 years on a refinance deal, and your prepayment is open after 10. Okay. So you have a long period of time with no prepayment penalty. The other deals, there, there is an extended prepayment penalty period on that, on, and that's somewhat negotiable. Mm -hmm. e even, even in the agencies, it's still somewhat negotiable. As so we if do you that. want a loan with no prepayment penalty, the the, the source is the bank, and the they're not competitive. The, um, not not if you get out to those long terms. The the, okay. the 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 swap market is not very efficient today. When you get to the seven and ten year levels, I think a five year swap maybe could still work, but I think it's still going to get you into the fives probably with most lenders. Mm -hmm. But when you get out to seven ten, especially beyond ten, but when you get out to seven to ten, the swap market's not working very well. So the, the banks kind of fall out at that point on a fixed rate basis. Um, what I was going to say, though, on the, on the life insurance company side, if you decided you you like the rate where we are, the rate environment today, and you wanted to go 20 and 25 years, that financing is available in the life company world. Many lenders looking for that long money right yeah, now. Yeah, and that uh, you're not going to be able to pay that off for a while, right? You you're probably looking at at least prepayment protection through half of the term. Wow. Yeah, uh, that would make me a little nervous if I wanted to. To do something. Well, they are assumable. They're assumable. They are assumable, yeah. and, and 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 while no one will put this in writing, mm -hmm. uh, quite often we have the ability to go back to that life company if you wanted to sell your property, mm -hmm. and and let's say that you started out with a 65% loan and mm -hmm. it's amortized down now and it's a 49% loan mm -hmm. and you want to sell it, the lender may be able to ratchet that back up again with a with a, a, a coterminous junior loan you know, be, for your buyer. Be, because the paperwork is going to say no to that, not in no secondary. Yeah, the paperwork financing. is is going to bar you from yeah. more bar you from secondary financing. Yeah. 
uh, it'll allow an assumption, but it will make no promises whatsoever as to getting more money. The reality is lenders like to keep their money out at favorable rates. If, yeah. if you've got a, 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 a story that works for them, they'll consider lending you more money or lending your buyer more money right. okay. at the time. Now, and we've all heard about the technology and things are getting more efficient out there in the commercial real estate world. How about the time to, to get a loan on, say, an existing apartment project today? Is it um, changed it, it hasn't really changed a whole lot. Uh, we still look you at close the loan in three days, right? Oh, always, always. <laughs> yeah, at about eighteen percent. Um, no, you know, we still look at, kind of at, at the standard process being sixty days from application to closing. Mm -hmm. uh, we can go faster than that, and the lenders can go faster than that. I will tell you, they usually reserve that speed mm -hmm. for acquisitions yeah. that that are on usually on tighter time frames and time frames with, with pain for not meeting certain benchmarks. On your typical refinance though, we still, you still would like to have 60 days application to close. Yeah. Well, the sellers of apartment projects today think 60 days is way too long, Tom. Oh, oh yeah, I, I mean, you know, there's, a, there's a lot of strange things going on as, as far as there's, there's more money than there is deals. Yeah. And so when you have a deal that's, that, that's being chased by a lot of people, yeah. you get people going hard day yeah. one, yeah. you know, no due diligence period on yeah. things. They'll do some what we would think of as kind of crazy things to get a deal tied up. Today. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, we see it mm -hmm. every day. It's uh, kind of amazing. So let's ask about uh, some particular property types like age restricted over 55. Mm -hmm. uh, how do lenders look at that product? Age restricted um, w without any services and any, uh, any funky deed things, age restricted would be looked at really just as apartments. Okay. Okay. That, that is actually a marketing function. Yeah, all right. That's how you choose to operate your property. Okay. Yeah. Now, there may be some design features in that. A lot of those, they, they like one story units. Mm -hmm. they, even on a two story property, you're going to have an elevator, you know, because of that. But that's really apartments. It's where you get into services, where independent living, yeah. which is kind of independent living, but it'll have a central cafeteria or, or a meal plan. Mm -hmm. You know, that gets into what we would call senior housing, yeah. and that's a different category. And that is a category that tends to be dominated by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, yeah. uh, and, and HUD also too. Okay. And how are lenders today looking at student housing? Um, with uh, with a curious eye, um, there are there are several markets in the country that um, have at least a taste of overbuilding. I would say that's mostly in the flagship markets. Uh, you know, and, and, I, and I, I'll describe a flagship market in in Alabama. That would be Tuscaloosa or Auburn. It, it would not be you know Troy. All right, it's 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 the big state right. universities that everyone's heard of. Okay. Those those markets have attracted the most capital. Have people heard of that college there? They in have. The US? They have. Yes, they have. Yeah, the one in Tuscaloosa. Yeah, yeah Tuscaloosa. I can't remember the name of it. No. But, um, so, the, those markets, uh, you have to be careful in those markets. That doesn't mean that there's not new property being done in those markets and being done successfully. Yeah. But from a from both a developer and a lender perspective, you really need to understand what you're getting into, your location, dynamics, the dynamics of the, of, of the school, the, the on-campus housing that may or may not be coming online in the school. Um, there may be some actually more opportunities in, in what you might call the second tier schools in a lot of states. However, a lot of lenders uh, don't 
jump right in in the second tier schools. That they like to be in the flagship big university towns. There's a, maybe a bit of a, of a push-pull going on there in that. But you may have some more opportunities in what might be the second tier cities. Okay. And who would be the best lenders for a couple different property types that the audience may have? So let's say someone's got a, uh, a B or maybe even C-plus product. Okay. Okay. Um, depends on leverage, and, and that's going to be the answer to a lot of these questions. Okay. okay? At, the, at the higher leverage levels in, in I would, what I would call the lower quality tiers, that's probably a CMBS or conduit execution. Okay. Okay? If you get into the, the B minus C stuff, and as long as the economics work for it, if you're at more modest leverage, that could be a life insurance company. Really? I mean, life insurance companies don't just do double A super squeaky shiny stuff, okay? okay? Um, but it, at, at, that, at that level, it could be a life company. At the higher debt levels, it would probably be a CMBS lender. Okay. And then if you have the, the squeaky clean double A? Um, that's, you're going to have all sorts of people chasing that. Yeah. You know, Fannie and Freddie are, are they're, you're going to get the best pricing they have on that. If you're looking for modest leverage, the, the large life insurance companies, the name brands that you would know, you know, mm -hmm. from commercials on television, mm -hmm. they're going to get down and dirty to win that high quality business. It, it, it's very interesting on, on the agency side. It's, it's harder than ever to quote pricing. Because it, it, you know, there used to be, we thought of it as a grid, and maybe you varied off the grid a little bit. Now we're varying off the grid you know, to a material way now, and it depends on property quality, borrower quality, the size of the deal. Larger deals get more favorable treatment. Mm -hmm. um, but if you, have a, if you have a high quality property with very solid economics on the multifamily sector today, you will have no shortage of people trying to give you financing. Well, if it's my property, obviously it's high quality. It must Tom. be. It must be. <laughs> so, <laughs> what do you tell borrowers today um, about third-party reports? If let's say they're doing an acquisition, um, they've got a tight time frame, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they want to go ahead and do some due diligence. Um, what do you tell them there? If they want to go out a ahead of time mm -hmm. and 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 order their own third-party reports, I would talk to a a mortgage banker before I order anything to try to make sure I'm ordering from a vendor that will be universally acceptable. Okay. Okay. We, we actually going through a, a situation right now where, where they thought they had one that was, and they found out that it wasn't. And so we had to go order new reports. Borrower was not very happy about that, but they had gone out and ordered their own reports. Um, time frame wise, uh, appraisals, uh, we can get appraisals done in a couple weeks today. Uh, we're going to pay a little more for that, but when I say we pay a little more, that little more is a rounding error in, in the size of in the overall transaction size. Yeah. Uh, two weeks is, is pushing it. Uh, we, we generally, when we get a, a two-week appraisal, I will tell you it probably has a little more back and forth with the appraiser after that. They, they've, they've gone extraordinarily fast in order to get this stuff done. Yeah. You go really fast, you might miss something, you may make a mistake somewhere. Uh, on, on, on the environmental engineering, the other third-party reports, two weeks is a very standard there. Okay. You know, that's become, especially on the environmental side, that, that's a, that's, those reports are done on computer more than anything else today. Yeah. Two weeks is standard for those. Appraisers would love to have three and four weeks. Sometimes on an acquisition, you just don't have that time, and we can get them done in, in two, certainly done in three, sometimes done in two, you're just gonna pay a little more for it. Most of your lenders require surveys. Yes, and that's a state-specific thing, and quite often depends on the title company. Mm -hmm. If they will ensure 
on an old survey, then a lot of lenders won't make you get a new survey. Uh, the ability to do that varies in, on, based on state law. Uh, lenders are usually, they try to help you if they can on that to not have you go spend a whole lot of money. Uh, they, they all do have their standards and they're, and they're not going to come off those standards. But if they can help you by using an old survey or getting an old survey updated, they will try to help you. Is there a way that someone in the audience could know if the, the third party vendors that they like to use mm -hmm. uh, would be on the approved list of a lot of these lenders? Just call a mortgage bank. Okay. Uh, th that's the easiest way to do that. Uh, yeah. You know, rather than calling 30 life insurance companies, mm -hmm. you call one me. <laughs> right. Uh, all right. And right. I can I can give you a pretty good idea who the, who the universally acceptable people are. Yeah. So. Okay. What uh, tip would you leave the audience with, Tom, related to financing today? Um, be early. Don't 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 wait too long. Uh, while we can do things in very tight time frames, and we do some amazing things in tight time frames, that doesn't really benefit hardly anybody yeah. at all. Especially the borrower. Yes. You know, <laughs> you know, do things on, on a timely basis. Allow enough time to get things done. On acquisitions, don't wait until you sign your purchase and sale agreement to say, oh, what are we going to do about financing now? <laughs> all right. Yeah. Be engaged early on that. Most mortgage bankers will, will be happy to spec some time for you, to give you an idea on what your deal might look like if you bought it for this amount of money. Um, use, use that service that's available. Just don't, don't wait too long. Yeah, well, that's a good tip. And you know, I can tell you as a broker, you know, we're getting a lot of interested buyers in properties. And, and as a broker, we need to know how you're financing it and funding it. And we want to talk to your lender. I want to sure. see how far down the road you are, uh, or you might not win the deal. Yeah, uh, so. I would imagine as a broker, if if my if my buyer told me they were going to need financing, and mm -hmm. you asked them what's their process look like, and they went, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, it probably would not give you a really good feeling about their right. viability as a buyer. <laughs> That's right, Tom. Great. Thanks for your information. As great as you know, uh, always for being always with a us. pleasure to be here. All right, and thank you for being with us. Stay with us, though. We'll have some more on the multifamily market. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Invest alongside real estate experts, sponsors who have a successful track record and skin in the game. It's as easy as one, two, three. Learn about the deals, make your investment, and grow your financial wealth. Visit arborcrowd.com. Are you looking to buy, sell, or lease commercial real estate? You're invited to contact Bull Realty for customized asset and occupancy solutions. Call 404-876-1640 or visit bullrealty.com. Promote your business to the U.S. commercial real estate industry. Click advertise at the show website, CREshow.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Thank you for being with us. This segment is brought to you by Bull Realty Asset and Occupancy Solutions. I can say it, it's my own company, right? Visit bullrealty.com. Well, today we're talking about the multifamily market. And I thought I'd close the show with some ideas, some opportunities that you might have in the marketplace right now to just give you a brief background. I've been in commercial real estate for 30 plus years. I started in multifamily, started managing and, and renovating apartments and worked for a company that bought them and sold them and, 
and operated them, managed and owned a property management company, uh, sold apartments for, for 15 years, that's all I worked on, and now my company sells apartments and other projects. But I think even though we are where we are in the cycle, there are some opportunities. First, let's look at uh, operations and some tips there. Uh, one thing to consider if you're not using it yet is revenue management software. Um, you know, like the airlines use and the hotels use that uh, kind of automatically adjust where your uh, street rents are. Uh, when I uh, managed properties years ago, I would spend some time uh, scoping out my competition and I knew all the competition for all my apartment deals uh, and where the tenants were going, what the rates were, what their occupancy availability was, so I could adjust with the marketplace and maximize the rents on my properties. Also, obviously, I was looking at what I had coming available for rent um, and uh, the stability of each project. But now there's revenue management that can take that uh, <laughs> and, and, and have, let that happen for you. And you don't have to rely on managers. You know, another thing I think it's, it's great about revenue management is, you know, your staff will develop relationships with your tenants. And you know, you've got a tenant that's been there a long time. You're, you're a little concerned about, you know, raising their rents to street rents or, or close to street rents and, and fear that they might leave. And I think when your staff can look at the the uh, residents say, hey, we love you, you know, you're great, we're so glad you're here, but the computer says <laughs> that um, we're, you're still under market, you won't find anything cheaper, and we have to do it because the computer says it, so think about that. I even had a fake name back in the day that I used when I called on, uh, on all these apartment projects to see what their rents were. Another thing to think about in procedures is uh, leasing strategies. You know, how are you uh, generating tenant traffic? Are you utilizing uh, social media? Are you utilizing content marketing? How does your uh, web presence look? Do you have apps in place? What is the process? And test the process for tenants to look at space for your project. You know, go send test tenants in and see how, the, how it goes, how the project shows, how the leasing staff handles it. Uh, definitely keep testing that on all your properties. Another area we see opportunities for ownership to improve NOI is in their maintenance and their grounds. How well are you maintaining the properties? We see some properties where they're just not really giving great service on the maintenance and grounds. And the tenants see it. Uh, they're telling other tenants whether or not they should rent there. So do not underestimate uh, those items. And I think the, the last thing I'd say on uh, operations is Pay attention to your staff. I mean, that is the contact to your resident. Your income is, is gonna be impacted by the quality of your staff, the training of your staff. So pay close attention to your staff and see if that's an area where you can help them become better at what they do and help your apartment projects. Another idea to think about today is your capital stack, your financing. Obviously, we're in a time frame that we still have great low interest rates, but everyone is saying rates are going to increase. So look at your capital, look at your financing on your projects. Think about your long-term and potentially short-term goals if you might want to sell or something, and think about getting locking in some of these rates as long as you can. Look at when these loans mature, get an early start, and consider on some of your projects if you might want to finance uh, now. Let's look at opportunities for building. As we've heard on our show today from Barbara Denham with uh, Reese, our, our, uh, and, and as we've heard some other economists, uh, and we've heard from um, financing folks like Tom Walsh, 
there might be some opportunities for new supply in close-in suburban markets. You know, these little markets and towns that are in suburbia, but maybe they're close in and they have really good opportunities. Maybe they even have some opportunities to, to build where these, these areas don't want really apartments. And if you can get in by an existing project, redevelop a new one. So I think there's still some uh, opportunities for new supply in a lot of these markets uh, because the apartment demand is still expected uh, continue to be strong. Um, another opportunity I think is out there right now that we see is the continued opportunity to buy B properties and maybe C properties, value add opportunities. Um, in a lot of markets around the country, we're headquartered in Atlanta, so we see a lot of opportunities around the southeast. And I think there's a lot of times where you can come in and those B and C properties are time, time, sometimes harder to manage. So you can come in and look at them and find opportunities to manage them better and improve rents, improve occupancy. Maybe you have some light value add or even some heavy. Um, and there's still some real good opportunities there, so think about that. I think another opportunity in some of these uh, B projects and C projects are the potential to build new on those sites in the next cycle, right? So you buy them now, you operate them and get uh, as good a cash flow as you can with the thought that maybe in the next cycle, now you have a site that you can redevelop with new uh, project. The last tip I'd give you today is considering selling. I mean, if you have existing projects, you've, if you've seen your rents rise, you've seen your values rise, now you're seeing interest rates increase, you, know, you never know what can happen in the economy, in the market. Uh, some, some bad things can happen and change a market overnight. If you can take a nice profit on a property, uh, you know, it might be time to do it. So people like us around the country that have teams who focus on multifamily can, can look at your project and let you know uh, what it might bring on the marketplace. Uh, look at your missions, your other, your other investments, your other properties and see if it's the right time. So hope you enjoyed those strategies. If you have any questions or comments, please share them with me. And thanks for listening to the show today or watching us on YouTube around the country. Be sure and catch us next week. Until then, be sure you always lead, learn, and laugh and join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty, Asset and Occupancy Solutions, Arbor Crowd, Invest Alongside Experts, Bomi.org, Property and Facility Management Education, Real Crowd, Crowdfunding with Professionals, The News Funnel, Real Estate News Personalized, CommercialAgentSuccess.com, video training from Michael Bull. To access these great companies or for more videos, podcasts, and articles, visit CREshow.com.